Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. Everyone has been made abundantly aware that Puerto Rico is in debt to Wall Street and needs to pay up. What's left out of its debt story is that Puerto Rico has been colonial property longer than any nation in the world. And for over a century, their economic path has been mandated by the very same government now demanding they pay for the problems they caused. It doesn't see many perks of being in the clutches of the beast. Unemployment and poverty rates in Puerto Rico are double that of the poorest states in the U.S. And there isn't much they can do about it, with no real political representation. The recent debate over the bailout package known as PROMESA is one illustration. Yes, the territorial clause of the Constitution of the United States says that they are territory and that therefore they are property of the United States of America. The Jones Act imposed on the people of Puerto Rico the most expensive merchant marines in the world. Imposed on the people costs $500 million a year. Why don't we lift that from them? I mean, we believe in democracy. We believe they should be free. Why don't we lift that from them? You are imposing a junta because that's what they're calling it. There will be no difference between this junta and the junta of Pinochet in Chile, as far as the international community is concerned. To find out more about Puerto Rico's crisis, I sat down with Professor Luis Barrios, former chair of Latin American Studies at John Jay College. A recent YouGov poll showed that a majority of Americans actually think that Puerto Ricans are Puerto Rican citizens, not American citizens. Luis, can you first describe the legal status of Puerto Rico? Uh, what autonomy does it have and what sort of political representation does it have? Well, first, I'm not surprised of that <laughs> statement. You don't want to know how many places I go asking for my immigration card. And I tell them that I'm from Puerto Rico. They say, yes, that's why I'm asking you for your immigration permit to be here. There's, uh, there's a situation that most people in the U.S., they are not aware that we are uh, USA citizens. It was in 1917 uh, when the U.S. imposed, and I like to highlight that, because the, first they went into asking if we want. And there was a referendum and most of the Puerto Ricans say no. We want to stay a uh, Puerto Rican citizen. And that's when the U.S. say, doesn't matter, you are becoming USA citizen. Of course, at that moment, you had to understand they were trying to find people, soldiers to send to the First World War. So someone came out with this idea, get the Puerto Ricans. And someone else said, they're not USA citizens. So that was the real motivation behind this. Uh, but of course, also, it's very important that we understand that it's a second-class citizenship. So Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico do not have the power to vote for the president of the United States. But it's not only that. We don't have the power to elect people from Puerto Rico to go into the USA Congress. So we have the power to elect someone that we call a, a, a commissioner resident in Washington, someone who can talk but no vote. The, the other is like uh, for uh, jumping into international economy. No, we are subordinated. doesn't matter that we are uh, citizens of the United States. The U.S. make all the decisions. With whom, how, and how much. What is the Commonwealth in 1952? It was established as that after 
you know, decades of, of suppressing national liberation movements. What does that do? First, the big motivation behind the so-called Commonwealth that we're still trying to find a definition, in, at least in Spanish, it's a Estado Libre Asociado. And if you go into translation to that, it's supposed to be a state, it's supposed to be associated, it's supposed to be free. And we know that it's not a state, it's not free, and it's not associated. So we have no idea what is the real meaning of the so-called Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Uh, they like to say uh, that it was Luis Muñoz Marín who came up with this brilliant idea. No, it was the USA Congress, people there who want to legalize. Everything that they do in this country is always legal. Doesn't matter that it's slavery. Doesn't matter that they're going to execute you. Whatever they're going to do has to be legal. So the United Nations was giving the U.S. a hard time with this issue that you have, you have a country there that is a colony. So they want to get the name of Puerto Rico out of that lease. So they came up with this little package that they call the Commonwealth. Uh, but when you look at this, it's subordination of the power. Because our constitution that came out uh, from there is more or less a copy carbon of the U.S. Constitution. But from the beginning to the end, there is something clear. All the power is surrendered to the USA Congress. You know, we can't understand Puerto Rico's situation today with, with, without, of course, looking at the centuries of colonial rule. Um, going back to the Spanish, uh, what affected 400 years of Spanish colonization have on the development of Puerto Rico? Well, I think that was the big foundation. Uh, from 1492, when Spain uh, first did the invasion, and then 1508 is the colonization, putting the first governor in Puerto Rico, Juan Ponce de Leon. Into 1898, everything there was subordination. The early stages of Spanish conquest divvied up the tens of thousands of indigenous Taino Indians to either be killed or serve as slaves. African slaves were also brought in large numbers, and all were put to work in mines and on farms. Slave labor converted the island into nothing but a massive cash crop for coffee, tobacco, and sugar. During that time, the Puerto Rican people were constantly under threat, not only from their colonizers, but other empires, the Dutch, French, and British. During the late 19th century, thousands of indigenous people, peasants, former African slaves, and more banded together to mount huge insurrections against the Spanish crown. In 1897, Spain was forced to concede and granted Puerto Rico official sovereignty. We were independent for 12 hours <laughs> when we became aware that the U.S. did a military uh, invasion into Puerto Rico uh, through Juanica, uh, July 25th, 1898. They said, okay, so they just got rid of the Spain flag and they put the USA flag. We're not going any place and they're still there. We're still trying to get them out of there. The burgeoning U.S. empire declared themselves the new rulers of Spain's prison nations, launching bloody military invasions across the region. At the end of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. had invaded and seized the Spanish colonies of the Philippines, Cuba, Guam, the Marietta Islands, and Puerto Rico. How was Puerto Rico governed after the U.S. took it over in 1898? With the U.S., it was a face-to-face -face confrontation. We are here, you come from nowhere, and you're saying that this is how we're going to do things. 
And one of the first things that they did was is saying that uh, the, the, the primary language in Puerto Rico was English. And that was effective from 1898, more or less, until the 30s. Uh, they, they were trying to eradicate uh, the Spanish language. Always, no, it's, it's nothing new. Always the empire, when they do the invasion, mm -hmm. they need to control how it is that people communicate. They need to hear, they need to listen. Immediately, they impose the currency, they impose the post office, they impose the, the USA citizenship, they impose uh, uh, recruiting Puerto Ricans to fight every single war that they've been uh, fighting in the, the whole uh, uh, history in the 20th and 21st century. We've been there. So yes, it's like uh, 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 you're a second class citizen, but we're going to use you. Puerto Rico as a U.S. colony began under direct U.S. military rule. The top seat of power, a governor, was a U.S. military officer appointed by the president. There were no elections for the rest of the government, only U.S.-appointed colonial lords. In 1900, a so-called civilian government was established, allowing a small sliver of legislators to be elected by Puerto Ricans, but all powers still held by Washington. A vibrant and dedicated independence movement was shaking the island. Fearing the Puerto Rican people deciding Puerto Rico's fate, President Truman tried to make cosmetic changes to create the illusion of democracy. Now, Puerto Ricans could vote for their own governor to administer their continued colonial status. Later, the island's label was changed to a commonwealth, which was just a new way for the U.S. government to legalize it as a colony. What happened with agriculture and, and political repression during that 50-year block leading up until that movement that forced the Commonwealth and the first actual election? There was a plan from the beginning to transform the social economy of Puerto Rico uh, without taking into consideration Puerto Ricans. So we are an agriculture country with the biggest production, uh, sugar, uh, tobacco, and uh, coffee, and then other products that we use. It was something that demonstrated that we had the capacity to produce what we need, mm -hmm. okay? The U.S. came with this plan to convert Puerto Rico from an agriculture into an industrial country. The plan from the beginning was, and this is where we are to understand all this so-called crisis, uh, the plan from the beginning was we need to move Puerto Rico into producing what they don't need and buying what they need. When the first civilian governor of Puerto Rico, Charles Herbert Allen, was appointed in 1901, he had plans to expand Puerto Rico's sugar slave economy. Allen used his short term as governor to appoint dozens of political operatives that would later grant him easy access for exploitation. He soon became the president of the largest sugar refinery in the world, the American Sugar Refining Company. As author Nelson Dennis notes, by 1930, Allen and U.S. banking interests had converted 45% of all arable land in Puerto Rico into sugar plantations. These bank syndicates also owned the postal system, the entire coastal railroad, and the international seaport of San Juan. By 1934, 80% of all the sugarcane farms in Puerto Rico were owned by a U.S. banking syndicate. Allen and the American Sugar Refining Company set the template for all of them. 
With a rising industrial economy, U.S. business wanted to make more money out of its colonial project. So the government implemented a series of tax incentives to attract private capital into Puerto Rico, called Operation Bootstrap. Plantations became refineries and factories, causing devastating consequences to the social fabric of the island and causing a mass exodus of farm workers to the U.S. Those who stayed were subjected to a horrifying racist program. Between 1936 and 1968, the U.S. waged a eugenics campaign to sterilize as many Puerto Rican women as possible. During that time, a shocking one-third of all women living in Puerto Rico had their ability to have a child taken away. First, they went into testing in Puerto Rico for more than 20 years, birth control pills. Mm. When it was ready, they brought that here. But a lot of women died in Puerto Rico during that type of experiment. And then they went without telling Puerto Rican women that they were going to be sterilized. They started doing that to stop the Puerto Rican population. There was a complete displacement with, through Fomento Cooperativo to get Puerto Ricans out. And they started sending people here, agriculture here. Danny Shaw is a professor of Latin American and Caribbean studies at CUNY, who's lived in the South Bronx for the last 20 years. He took me to El Maestro Boxing Gym, which is a hub of education about the Puerto Rican independence movement, bearing a mural of national heroes and freedom fighters. The desire for sovereignty from U.S. bondage is reflected here in generations young and old. By converting Puerto Rico into this, this what's called monocultivo, monoculture, sugar-producing island, there's nothing to sustain the, the population. So the Hiberos, or the, the peasants of Puerto Rico, are forced to migrate. They face a very harsh environment once they get here to Harlem, to the South Bronx. They face widespread bigotry and racism. The Italian-American communities and Irish-American communities that were here um, saw the Puerto Ricans as the outsiders, as the newcomers. They were chased down the block. They were excluded from neighborhoods. While the U.S. treated Puerto Ricans as others, they were more than happy to call them equals when sending them to war. When President Wilson granted citizenship in 1917, Virtually zero volunteered to fight for their new flag in World War I. So he made it compulsory, and just two months later sent around 20,000 to the killing fields. Since then, Puerto Ricans have been sent to die in every U.S. war. Puerto Rican soldiers were also used as guinea pigs for American chemical weapons and drugs. Not only that, but entire islands of Puerto Rico were turned into testing grounds. Culebra, which hundreds of Puerto Ricans called their home, became a practice range for U.S. bombs. When mass community protests forced them to stop, the U.S. Navy simply shifted to the neighboring island of Vieques. In 2000, Puerto Rican environmental activists and Amigos del Mar, or Friends of the Sea, stormed the Statue of Liberty and hung the Puerto Rican flag demanding the U.S. military leave. Today, those islands are plagued with environmental devastation. Cancer rates for the community on the island are astronomical and unexploded bombs still litter the area. For the Pentagon, Puerto Rico wasn't just a testing ground, but a launch pad. When you look at the physical location of what we call, what we call the Americas, the enter into the Americas is Puerto Rico, it's the first island. So it was military strategy. And that's why the last empire who invited us, which is the US, we've been saying, that different from other countries, Puerto Rico do not have 
uh, uh, U.S. military bases. The whole island is a military base. Okay. Show me one invasion to a country in Latin America that do not depart from Puerto Rico. Or the whole issue of training. Before dropping the, the orange agent in uh, uh, Vietnam, it was tested in Puerto Rico in El Junque mm -hmm. for 10 years. They used Puerto Rico before invading uh, uh, the Dominican Republic. They did their rehearsal in Puerto Rico uh, before the invasion in 1965. They did a rehearsal before invading uh, Panama. And we can go on and on. So it's one of the most powerful military strategy location. The Puerto Rican masses were never willing participants in their colonial subjugation. In the 1930s, the Nationalist Party rose to prominence under the charismatic leadership of Pedro Albizu Campos. But advocating for independence was illegal for U.S. colonies, and Campos was jailed for sedition for the next 26 years. With the nationalist movement growing and hurting corporate profits with mass strikes, U.S. generals ordered several massacres of peaceful demonstrators. At one community march in the town of Ponce in 1937, General Blanton Winship, the appointed dictator of Puerto Rico, ordered the protesters shot. Nineteen were murdered. So American colonization, the American repression in Puerto Rico was so intense that if you raised the Puerto Rican flag, it's like Palestine today, they could put you in jail. It was illegal. You were on the run. If you even brought up the theme of nationalism, if you were known to be a follower of Don Pedro Albizu Campos, if you talked about this in a barbershop on the street corner, there was something called La Ley de la Mordanza, which translates into the gag order or the gag law. So it was made illegal to even uh, reach these themes. Despite the repression, by 1950, the popularity of the Nationalist Party and their demands for sovereignty were making American businessmen sweat. So the Pentagon created a plan to wipe out the party's leaders and its members. But the attack was uncovered. And on October 30, 1950, a woman named Blanca Canales led an armed counterattack on a police station in her town of Hayuya. They forced the surrender of the police and committed an intolerable act of defiance, raising the Puerto Rican flag in place of the American flag. The act inspired people to rise up against colonial authorities in cities all across the island. But empires don't give up their profits easily. The Truman administration drowned the rebellion in blood. He ordered the immediate indiscriminate bombing of Hayuya, and the U.S. military marched in and declared martial law. Nationalist Party members, or anyone remotely sympathetic to them, were rounded up, imprisoned, and worse. Mercilessly crushed with violence by the U.S. military in their homeland, the fight for independence went the only place it could. So when the Puerto Ricans were in the middle of their uprisings in 1950, 1954, Hayuya, Utuado, over here, you see a massive uh, response, and Lolita Lebron and Rafael Cancel Miranda, some of the individuals who this gym is named after, my son Ernesto Rafael uh, has the name of Rafael Cancel Miranda. They say that an attack on us in Puerto Rico is an attack on Puerto Ricans everywhere, and they make a decision in an attempt to say that Puerto Rican blood was worth as much as American blood, and if you were uh, killing our people back home in Puerto Rico, there would be grave consequences to pay here for the top U.S. policymakers. In 1954, a factory worker named Lolita Lebron led three other armed nationalists into the U.S. Congress, 
unfurled the Puerto Rican flag, and with a cry of que viva Puerto Rico libre, opened fire. Five congressmen were shot and wounded. The four revolutionaries were arrested and given life sentences. Lebron had written in what she thought was her final letter. I am not sorry. My life I give for the freedom of my country. The United States of America is betraying the sacred principles of mankind in their continuous subjugation of my country. By the late 60s, Puerto Rican youth and a group called the Young Lords coalesced into a huge nationalist political organization, most notably here in the South Bronx. The, the Young Lords were the maximum incarnation of uh, the Puerto Rican people coming alive here, demanding national liberation, not just in Puerto Rico, but here in the U.S., uh, feeling solidarity with the African-American population, with poor whites, with Native communities. And the Young Lords uh, were born in, in these very streets. It's the contradictions here in the ghettos of America and the most oppressed communities where immigrants are forced to come, that the Young Lords come alive. The Young Lords have as their slogan, Palante Siempre Palante, forward, always forward. And they carry out the independence struggle here in the belly of the beast. And Puerto Ricans came here 30, 40 years ago and they lived in the most neglected communities. And today these same communities are the most neglected. In the early 1970s, the uh, city's sanitation department would pick up trash. But once they got to 86th Street and 96th Street, they said, well, we finished picking up the trash because who lives further uptown? Well, it's the Puerto Ricans and it's the African Americans. We don't need to go up there. So the young lord said, we're going to take power into our own hands. They started picking up all the trash in the public housing, in the streets, and they brought it into the middle of Fifth Ave, and they lit it all on fire. And that forced the city of New York uh, to move further uptown and to uh, pick up the trash. That was called the trash campaign of the, of the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. There's also the story of Lincoln Hospital, the neglect in the healthcare industry was so intense here in the South Bronx that once again the Young Lords said we're going to take power into our own hands. They invaded uh, a wing of the South Bronx and they set up their own uh, clinics, clinics for the people to deal with tuberculosis and other illnesses that were affecting the communities. Mm -hmm. And they mobilized all of the healthcare workers and there was strong community support. None of this could have ever been done without the, the support of the community. So the legacy is very strong and inspiring today. The repression, just like in Puerto Rico, was very intense here. There were outright murders of young Lord leaders. There was a FBI COINTELPRO campaign to divide and conquer. But the young Lord's legacy definitely lives in another generation of, of, of Puerto Ricans today who continue to fight for the independence. Throughout the 80s, the FBI worked to pick off the leaders that survived COINTELPRO. Political prisoners like Oscar Lopez Rivera still languish in U.S. prison, as he has for over 35 years. Today, the FBI continues to relentlessly spy on and attack Puerto Rican liberation activists. All the while, U.S. corporations continue to cash in on the huge tax incentives to move their production to the colony. But in 2006, when those corporations decided to leave for even bigger profits, it immediately triggered a recession. Unemployment surged. Luckily for U.S. multimillionaires, Congress made Puerto Rico's debt tax-free too, so it was bought up by drooling American investors, hedge funds, and Wall Street banks. They knew their investment would one day pay off, when they could have the government put a knife to the throat of the island. 
So when you look at what came out out of the uh, USA Congress last week, it's a plan to give back the money to Wall Street. But how is going to happen? You have to take away social investment. Keep in mind that also they're trying to deal with something that is not so clear, like uh, 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 the country that is negotiating the $72 billion debt. Uh, the U.S. have the biggest debt in the whole world, $18 trillion, and nobody say nothing. But then the solution, take away investment in people. And when we say investment, social investment, it's always, uh, like for example, Puerto Rico, one of the measures that is going to happen is that they need to fire at 100,000 uh, public employees. What's going to happen with those people? Mm -hmm. And this is nothing new. It's been happening, but they're not paying attention. Okay? It has to be something like this so-called $72 billion that make things visible because Wall Street is crying. If not, nobody's going to see this. And also just it kind of is going along with this whole neoliberal doctrine that we've seen play out over the last 30 years. You know, it's Detroit, all these cities in Michigan that are getting taken over by emergency management systems. And then it seems like Puerto Rico, it almost seems like hedge fund managers in Wall Street want Puerto Rico to default because then they can go seize more of the land, privatize more of the resources. Um, I mean, what kind of incentivization is, is being given to Wall Street and just like private business owners to move in and kind of take advantage of the situation? They give you a tax break for 10 years, no more than that. Uh, you don't pay taxes there, you don't pay taxes here. But then uh, this incentive is started in the 40s. And you can't show me one, one of these corporations paying taxes. And then you say, but the laws say that after 10 years, yeah, but before the 10 years, they're going to change in the name of the corporation, and then we have to start again. The U.S. recession in 2007 deepened Puerto Rico's hardships. We have 4 million Puerto Ricans in the U.S. and 4 million in Puerto Rico. We have half of the population out. Someone needs to come and say, what's wrong? When the United States gets a flu, Puerto Rico gets an ammonia because what they do is they transfer the social contradictions or the, the, the loss of profits, they transfer them down to Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico is twice as poor as any state in the United States, twice as poor as Mississippi. I mean, it's very ironic that the very individuals responsible for the disease would claim to come with the cure. <laughs> Puerto Rico doesn't have a $70 billion debt. It's the U.S. government and the U.S. policymakers and the exploiters that have the $70 billion debt. Puerto Rico is owed reparations for years and years of outright pillage, of, of theft, of exploitation of the Puerto Rican, the hibero, the peasant. Um, the pharma, pharmaceutical industry has been thriving for decades in, in Puerto Rico, where Pfizer and Johnson and & Johnson have corporate loopholes, tax loopholes, so all that money is owed to the Puerto Rican people. We can't imagine a solution with the contemporary relationship that exists between the U.S. government or the colonial overlords of Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican people. Colony is the problem. It's not the death. Death is a symptom. We need to find a solution to the real problem, which is the colonial status in Puerto Rico, that the U.S. do not want us to find a solution. 
So that's where the main issue is, but they don't want to go there. One of the things that we've been saying that a, a colonial status is a declaration of war, which means we Puerto Ricans, we have a right by any means necessary to decolonize the country because you declare the war. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.